subscriber doing things a little out of order. And for some of you, I know it may have caught you off guard and maybe you didn't even get a chance to give your offering, but you will get to have more worship later. So we'll put it out again and then I, I, somebody will help me remember. We'll pray over it at the end. Hallelujah. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together and worship you. Lord, we look forward to just honoring and glorifying you in this day and us knowing your presence. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Help us to always be a grateful people. Meet each need and touch each life in some way this morning. In Jesus' name. Well, I wanted to start with this uh, quote by Anne Ortland from her book, Uplift Worship. She said, Christians can be grouped into two categories, marbles and grapes. Marbles are single units that don't affect each other except in collision. Grapes, on the other hand, mingle juices. Each one is part of the fragrance of the church body. The early, church, the early Christians didn't bounce around like loose marbles ricocheting in all directions. Picture them as a cluster of ripe grapes, squeezed together by persecution, bleeding and mingling into one another. Fellowship and worship, then, is genuine Christianity freely shared among God's family members. It's sad to think of how many Christians today are missing that kind of closeness. Sermons and songs, while uplifting and necessary, provide, provide only part of a vital church we need involvement with others, too. <laughs> See, God's calling. <laughs> if we roll in and out of church each week without acquiring a few grape juice stains, we really haven't tasted the sweet wine of fellowship. So the title and question of the morning is, Are You a Grape or a Marble? When I read that quote, I just shared with you, I felt that it was a good illustration of what I was going to be sharing this morning, and a good illustration of what the early church was like. It wasn't packed into precise portions like so many church services are today. As we continue our study of our Hebrew roots, we're going to see that what a lot of people consider church is far from what church was really like. Um, it was a little wild it was always different. We never quite knew what to expect. And our services are like that sometimes, aren't they? We don't always know quite what to expect. Or who might be coming. More importantly, it was full of life, and it was full of joy, and it was full of celebration. So we're going to take a glimpse at the early church service, and you're going to see what I mean. Now we get this glimpse from uh, Dr. Robert Heidler's book, The Messianic Church Arising. And this glimpse, he kind of says, is about 60 A.D. So Christ, I think, was born somewhere 3 to 4 A.D. So approximately 30 years after Christ has been gone, he's giving us a glimpse of what the early church was like. He said, most Christian churches were house churches, and so they were a lot smaller than we we think. Now the church as a whole was large and they would meet together at different times for different functions but the weekly sessions were met in homes 
Uh, so we know that houses, for the most part, were much smaller than they are today. So it would have been a smaller gathering. Um, so here's how he predicts it, or, or illustrates it. And he gets this because he's read a lot of very early writers uh, that were both in the church and outside the church, historians. And so it gives us a pretty thorough glimpse of what the church was like. He said, the time would be Saturday evening and you would be welcomed by the host. You would most likely enter the courtyard uh, of the home where it seemed like a party was going on. Some people were playing flutes and lyres and tambourines. Others were singing or dancing and clapping their hands. The songs would have been full of praise of Jesus and the people's joy would be overflowing because they know the living God. Most of the services would begin with people uh, getting in a ring or uh, several rings and dancing Jewish-style Jewish ring dances like the Hora. The people were rejoicing before the Lord and dance. After much singing and dancing, food was brought out. And as they eat, the believers talk about the things of God, they share testimonies, they recite and discuss scripture, and sing praises to the Lord. You're impressed that while very few have personal copies of the Bible, most of the people there would have memorized huge portions of scripture. One of the leaders stands and reads a letter that they received that week from an apostle named Junia. Junia was not one of the original 12 apostles, but by this time, there are many church apostles in the church. In Romans 16:7, Paul is saying, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are, are outstanding among the apostles. He's calling them apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. You're also surprised to learn that Junia was a woman. And that they all pay careful attention to her letter. They've probably written her with questions regarding some points of doctrine or church things. Then there's a shift in that service. And a tangible sense of the presence of God just seems to fall all over the place. And as the presence of God rests in their midst, ministry begins to take place. A word of knowledge, a request for prayer, healing passage of scripture being read, a teacher standing up and expounding what that passage meant, uh, a prophetic song, a prophetic word, tongues and interpretation, all while maintaining an attitude of worship. There might be songs that burst out in the middle of that too. In the midst of all of this, someone accepts Christ because they're overwhelmed by what they see and what they feel, what they're experiencing. This is where much of the evangelism in the church took place, Dr. Heidler said, through a miraculous power of God working in the midst of his people. That's pretty easy evangelism, isn't it? Get somebody to come to church, and the presence of God takes place. That's pretty cool. He said most of us don't even have a concept of that happening, but it was the norm in the early church. People would come. They would get healed. They would see healing, they would see miracles, they would feel the presence of God, and all their resistance would just melt away. Irenaeus was uh, a writer of that day, and he wrote about 195 A.D. And he said uh, that in his day, prophetic words, tongues, and miracles of healing were common in the church. He adds that the church frequently saw people raised from the dead through the prayers of the saints. 
That was a, a pretty common occurrence in the early church. Can't you imagine if you eat your lunch after service? Well, actually, they would have eaten any service. But they just shut you too much. Say, that was so cool to see Joe's grandmother raised from the dead. I mean, people would be discussing that all week. And it sure would make the excitement of getting people who wanted to come to church next week. And you enthused about inviting them. Augustine, who became one of the leaders of the church, wrote, miracles have no purpose but to help men believe that Christ is Lord. 1 Corinthians 14, 23 through 32 Last week I gave you a, a passage to read, Acts 15. This week I'm going to ask you to read 1 Corinthians 14. 23 through 32 is Paul specifically giving different directions of how the service would go. You could see that if it's that kind of free-flowing service, it could maybe get a little out of order. And some of that had been happening, and so Paul was giving some instruction to try to bring balance, to try to get it back on track. But we're going to look at a passage of scripture because when you read that, after you get done reading 31 or 32, you're also going to see another passage, and this is where a lot of people get confused. So we're going to address that this morning. 1 Corinthians 14, 31 through 35. So he's saying, For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Like, don't interrupt each other is basically what he's saying. Make time and place for things. The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. He's saying, don't give me that excuse. I couldn't help myself. It just came out. He's saying there's order in God, okay? For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as, is, as in all the congregations of the saints. Then this is the part that trips people up. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And yet, the word also says, in Ephesians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does it even make sense to you that God would create half the population, give them gifts and anointings, but say, now don't really use them in public? 1 Corinthians 11.5, same book. Paul said, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. He's not saying she shouldn't prophesy. He's saying she should have her head covered when she prophesies. Okay? If you don't prophesy in, in private, necessarily, it's more a public kind of ministry. And it's, uh, it's just as though her head were unshaved. Look at Romans 16, 3 and 4. Greek Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Okay? She's, they're a couple, they're married, but they're both in ministry. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Why are they grateful to them? Because of their acts of service. In Acts 18, 24 through 26, this is what it says about them. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he's teaching accurately, but he's leaving. there's a part that he's missing, okay? And he's beginning because he's such a good speaker to develop a following. 
So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more earnestly. Okay? So a woman is helping instruct a church leader. So it wasn't, so there's that balance. So what's the deal? Well, I wanted to read you this um, footnote from the Life Application Bible. It says, in Corinthian culture, okay, so they're in Corinthian, in, in Corinth, they're in uh, Asia, women were not allowed to confront men in public. So, you know if you go to some parts of the world as a missionary, what do they train you in, in your missionary classes? to live by the culture that is present in that area. So if women normally cover completely up and you're a woman, guess what? How you need to dress in public is completely covered up. Certain words, they don't really mean anything here. But booger in another country is extremely foul language. So you have to know some of these customs, right? He said apparently some of the women who had become Christians thought that their Christian freedom gave them the right to question the men in public worship. Wherever Christianity went, women were excited because it freed them. Many times Christianity would join into nations where women were considered property. They had no rights. They had no say. And wherever it went, women's position was elevated. But what he's saying is maybe you've kind of gotten it off balance. Um, this was causing division in the church when they would would confront a man publicly, and they may not have just been asking the question, but actually challenging the leadership, which that would be wrong, I think, right? By any means. Um, it said it was causing division in the church. In addition, women of that day did not receive formal religious education, as did the men. Women may have been raising questions in the worship services that could have been answered at home without disrupting the service. And Paul was asking the women not to flaunt their Christian freedom during worship. The purpose of Paul's words was to promote unity, not to teach about women's role in the church. Because you see that uh, in other passages, he thanks women who have been for their service in the church. And uh, Priscilla was a teacher as well as Aquila. They accompanied Paul on missionary journeys. I don't think she went along just to cook meals. She was involved in teaching Paulus. And as I said before, you'll see in, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's giving some instruction because you can see that maybe people would get real excited about tongues and interpretation of tongues, and that would go on too long. And yet there's not really a good balance or a good understanding. So Paul was trying to bring some order so that things could progress and so that there wouldn't be division. So now we finish up with our glimpse. I wanted to include that because when you read that, you're going to go, what is that? God wants to use the gifts and anointings that he's placed in all of his church. Hallelujah. The church meeting you witnessed would have run late into the night. And as people left, they would be hugging and kissing each other goodbye. It would kind of look like a family reunion closing out. And it was. And that's how really I see our body. We really are family. I think of you as my family. That's how we should feel about each other. It's a family gathering opportunity once a week. So now we want to talk about early church growth. And let's look at how fast the early church really grew. If you read Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on 120 people. 
that were in a room in the city of Jerusalem. Now, do I believe that was all the believers in Jerusalem? No. But 120 were gathered. And the Holy Spirit fell on them. And by the end of the day, 3,000 members were added to their number. Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit fell this morning, we got so excited, we had said, we have to have church again tonight. And then we were trying to pack 3,000 extra people into this church. You know? That's how, that'd be pretty amazing. Church leadership would be kind of going, uh, it's a blessing, but, uh. <laughs> We'd be scrambling, wouldn't we? How do we keep up with this kind of growth? Um, Dr. Heidler also shares, within about a year, the church more than tripled in size, numbering more than 10,000 people in the first year in Jerusalem. Some historians estimate that by the time of Stephen's martyrdom, as early as two years later, and you have to remember, when Stephen was martyred, Paul was there, sort of egging them on, holding the coats of those who were going to stone him, right? So Paul hadn't even been converted, nor had he started any of his missionary journeys yet. So at the time of uh, Stephen's martyrdom, uh, some historians estimate that uh, the church in Jerusalem had grown to about 20,000 members. So in another year, it doubled again. Despite, do you know where this church would be if we had doubled, even just doubled every year? Oh my gosh. We would have, have bigger people. Despite severe persecution in t at times, the Messianic Jewish congregation in Jerusalem continued to grow. And it's possible that at the peak, half of the population of Jerusalem was in the church, were Christians pretty amazing. This rapid growth followed the church wherever it went. Many of the early churches had grown to over 50,000 members by the end of the first century. 100 AD, lots of churches are 50,000 members. Now, when you think of it, we have lots of churches, and maybe if you added them up in our larger congregations, we have, I mean, in larger cities, they'd be more than that. They have lots of house churches, but when they gather, the church in a certain city could easily be 50,000 people. We don't even think of those cities as, as having had that many people, let alone that 50,000 could already be Christians. Acts 19 indicates that Paul went to Ephesus. He started a church and remained there for two years, teaching his converts. And during those two years, not only was the entire city of Ephesus evangelized, a city of around 200,000 people. It doesn't say that all 200,000 came to the Lord, but they all had opportunity to hear the Lord in a two-year period. Not only that, but all the cities in the surrounding province were also reached during that time. The church at Colossae, as well as the seven churches mentioned in Revelations 2 and 3, were all probably planted during that two-year period. The church in Ephesus grew so rapidly that it disrupted the economy. Local idol makers, you can read this right in Scripture, were losing business because many of their customers were converting to Christianity and were no longer buying the idols that they made and sold. They got so upset that they began a riot and wanted Paul thrown into prison. Can you imagine a riot breaking out in Gibson? Because so many people have come to the Lord that some of the more unseemly businesses that could be associated in our area, drug dealers, etc., are rioting because they have lost their customers. Because Christ impacted 
community to that degree. By the time Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, it's estimated around 63 AD, the church in Ephesus had probably grown to around 60,000 members. So when he placed Timothy in charge of that, no wonder Timothy went, we want you to do what? 60,000 people? I, I don't know. Uh, right? No matter how learned you are, you might kind of think, I, I don't know if I'm up to that task. That's a lot of people. At its height, the church of Ephesus may have had as many as 100,000 members. That's about half the population. The Roman author, this is a Roman author, okay? Pliny said, and he wrote this in 112 AD. Christians are everywhere a multitude. According to Chrysostom, who was one of the leaders of the early church, the Christian population of Antioch in his day was about 100,000 people, or half of the whole city. Half of Antioch, 100,000 people, were Christians. That's pretty amazing. See, this wasn't a revival that lasted only a few years. If you study any of the revivals, they usually only last a handful of years. They burn hot and bright, and they accomplish something, and they're burned out within three to five years. Usually. But this wasn't that. Listen to how Dr. Heidler puts it. It was a sustained, multi-generational revival. It spread everywhere, and the world could not stand against it. What he doesn't share is it lasted for a few hundred years. By the end of the first century, the early church had spread throughout the known world. In a hundred years, it had spread throughout the It extended from India on the east to England on the west and from Germany on the north to Ethiopia on the south. And its expansion amazed the world. When you realize how fast it grew, how much it grew, then some of the scripture takes on a whole new light. In one city, when Paul and Silas came to town, the pagans cried out in horror. Acts 17.6, you can read this later. We're not showing it on the screen because I'm just reading a portion of it. It said, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They're saying, we know wherever these people go, things get turned upside down. Have you heard what happened in Ephesus? Did you hear about the riot of the idol makers? You know what's going to happen to our economy? We thought we were safe, but now they're here. They were afraid because they had seen what happened when the word of God, when the message of hope came to a community, that it turned things upside down. Remember, all these churches that Paul was starting were right in the heart of pagan country. This was foreign to their thinking. It was not unusual for a church to be planted in a city and rapidly grow to twenty or 30,000 members. That's amazing. Some historians estimate that by the end of the third century, 300 years, half of the population of the Roman Empire had been converted to Christianity. Half of the population of the Roman Empire. And the interesting part about that is that this growth took place within a totally pagan, immoral culture during times of severe persecution. 
and it still grew to half the population is estimated by the Roman estimates. How? Why? Why would it catch on fire like that? For one tiny church. They were living a vital, live experience with God the Creator. And when you touch and see God in that way, you'll settle for nothing less. And you'll risk persecution. You'll risk death to get that message out so that others can know that same liberty. You can see that in a live body of believers gathered together in true worship of a living God ushers in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the very presence of God. And when that happens, there's no telling what will happen. Now I've had people say, I've gone to church all my life. When I come here, when I came here, I felt the presence of God for the very first time. I always feel honored when they say that. But how sad. And the thing is, do I think we've got a few things right? Absolutely, I do. Do I think we're anywhere close to where we need to be? Because we don't take seriously the privilege of being able to worship God. And we settle for leftovers and crumbs because we don't bring all of us to the table. Miracles, healing, encouragement, direction, answers to prayer begin to flow when the presence of God is there. That's what a hurting world needs. We think that if the church is really the church, it'll scare people away. But it's exactly the opposite. If the church is really the church, we won't be able to keep them away. Because that's what happened in the early church. That's why it grew in spite of persecution. Because when they came, they experienced, they felt the tangible presence of God. And that growth continued like that for several hundred years. Now next week, we're going to look at what put the brakes on. And you're going to be a little bit surprised when you miss it. But I wanted to close to uh, share this uh, other excerpt that I really enjoyed by Ronald Allen from Worship, Rediscovering the Missing Jewel. He tells us what worship isn't and what it is. Worship, then, is the essence. What, then, is the essence of worship? It is the celebration of God. When we worship God, we celebrate him. We extol him. We sound his praises. We boast in him. Worship is not the casual chatter that occasionally drowns out the organ singers. We celebrate God when we allow the prelude to attune our ears, our hearts to the glory of God by the means of music. Worship is not the mumbling of prayers or the mouthing of hymns with little thought and less heart. We celebrate God when we join together earnestly in prayer and intensely in song. Worship is not self-aggrandizing words or boring cliches when one is asked to give a testimony. We celebrate God when all of the parts of the service fit together 
and works to a common end. Worship is not grudging gifts or compulsory service. We celebrate God when we give him to him hilariously and serve him with integrity. Worship is not haphazard music done poorly, nor even great music done merely as a performance. We celebrate God when we enjoy and participate in music to his glory. Worship is not a distracted endurance of the sermon. We celebrate God as we hear his word gladly and seek to be conformed by it more and more to the image of our Savior. Worship is not the hurried motions of a tacked-on large table. We celebrate God preeminently when we fellowship gratefully at the ceremonial meal that speaks so centrally of our faith in Christ, who died for us, who rose again on our behalf, and who is to return for our good. As a thoughtful gift is, is a celebration of a birthday. As a special evening out is a celebration of an anniversary. As a warm eulogy is a celebration of love. As a sexual embrace is a celebration of a marriage. So a worship service is a celebration of God. So when we come to celebrate God, we should be at least as excited as any other event that could happen in our life. So, everybody stand up. Take a deep breath. Flap your arms if you think you're falling asleep. Is everybody awake? No. I said, is everybody awake? Okay, you can sit down. Because if you missed anything I said before, I don't want you to miss this. Okay? I wanted to share that quote with you regarding what worship is and isn't. Because I want us to really think about how we worship God. And I want, wanted to remind you that worship takes on more form. Sometimes we think of worship, we get stuck in a mentality that it's just singing. Worship is giving. It's serving. It's the word. It is singing. But worship takes all of those forms. So don't just get excited when it's time to sing. or when it, you know There are some people there into music. That's why they come. There are other people there into the teaching. That's why they come. But be in worship throughout every part. We don't have to worship God. We get to worship God. Let us remember who we're really worshiping. The real reason we got out of bed on a Sunday morning instead of sleeping in. Most of us got out of bed, I believe this is you, because you really want to have contact with the living God. You really want him to impact your lives. That's why you bothered getting out of bed when it would have been easier to stay. That's why you came. And yet sometimes our worship is lackadaisical. Our worship doesn't reflect the early church's enthusiasm of finding the one true God. It doesn't reflect that all-out celebration and thanksgiving of the Lord. Get this. Hear clearly what I'm about to say. I am not saying that you have to worship loudly or act crazy or dance. Okay? I'm not saying you have to do any of those things. 
But I do want to encourage you, if you want to do those things, do them. And those who think that's ridiculous, don't judge them. And those of you who love to do that, don't judge the others when they don't do it. But here is what I am saying. You have to be awake. You have to be enthused and excited. I get for quieter personalities that that will look different than for those who are more exuberant. That's okay. Maybe the rowdiest a quiet personality is ever going to get is that they're going to raise their hands. Hallelujah, it's more than some of you have done. Right? But ask yourself this question. Am I giving God the best, most enthusiastic version of myself? Am I giving him all, whatever that might be? Am I giving all of me? If I'm quiet, am I giving all of me, all of my quiet nature? Are you excited to worship a God who loved you so much that he didn't even spare his only son on your behalf? Are you excited to worship a Savior who willingly suffered extreme pain, torture, and humiliation so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could have victory over the enemy, so that you could ultimately spend eternity with him? Every time we gather, we have to choose how we are going to worship him. Will it be with our leftovers, our exhausting week, our poor attitudes? Or will it be with a surrendered heart? I might be a mess, God, but I'm here. I am fully present and I'm all in. So stand up, church. And before we have communion, we're going to make a few confessions. Will you join me? I choose to worship you. And thank you today with my whole heart, no matter what is going on in my life. I choose to trust you that you always have my best interest at heart. I choose to believe that you hear my prayers and that your help does and will come, even if it's not in my time frame or in the fr framework I think it should be. I'm committed. I'm submitted. I'm ready to give you my best. Hallelujah. Now, if you're one of those and you just, you know, you know. We're not trying to judge anybody, but you know in your heart you have not given God your best tonight. The good news is, ask him to forgive you. And he will. Hallelujah. So I'm going to invite the music team forward. And I'm trying to truthfully remember, Kristen, how I told you this was going to go. Hallelujah. All right. As they're coming, church, I'm going to give you a choice. It's up to you. I know we have mixed feelings. 
sometimes we love to have the kids join us for communion and, and worship, and sometimes that, you know, changes things. So we can bring the kids up or we can leave them downstairs. How many want to bring the kids up? How many want to leave them downstairs? It's about even. <laughs> Maybe there's one. Most of you didn't raise your hand, so I don't think most of you care. Huh? All right, well, let's get the kids. Somebody, Usher, will you go down and get the kids? Tell them to come up. We'll let the music team prep for a minute. Holly, you can be seated. Sure, get the microphone. Somebody hold it for her. Hi, guys. I wanted to share something that a really awesome pastor I had several years ago said one day. You can be my example. Raise your hands up in a V, both of them. <laughs> what am I doing? Just raise your hands up. So her hands are in the shape of a V, and he always explained to us that just like when our children want us to pick them up and hold them, we look down at them, and that's what they do. And they're saying, Mommy, Daddy, pick me up. And it's just a position of surrender to God. I know sometimes it feels weird. First time I did it, I felt so weird. But it felt so good. And also, that shape is the shape of a V for victory. When we reach up to God, we have his victory. So I just wanted to share that. And here's the other thing I meant to say, and I've been saying. If we see the move of the Holy Ghost in our church, and only... Some of us are committed and submitted, and only some of us part of the time are, are really giving God our all. What do you think is going to happen if we all get on the same page? And we all just give it our all. Now, Brian asked me if I would read. Let me get my glasses, Brian. Colossians 15, 15 through 17? 3, 15. I knew I didn't get that right. All right, so while we're waiting, I'm going to do that. Colossians 3, 15 through 17 says, Let the peace of Christ um, rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of God, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Hallelujah. Sarah, you're giving them a chance to play, then you're going to sing. Huh? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. I was just reminding myself how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. First, we're going to take a few minutes 
to pray and just ask that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness, that we are in a right place to receive communion with the Lord. Okay? So, uh, you guys can sit down. As we pray, the music team is just going to sing a beautiful song for us. As you pray, you'll be able to listen to it. And Usher, when I give you the nod, then it may be toward the end of the song, then you start serving the elements. Then I'm going to share a couple passages of scripture, and we're going to receive communion, okay? So go ahead and just bow in prayer as the uh, music team blesses us.
great Amen. Seat of Prayer is uh, also to make sure that everyone gets saved. And don't forget the music team, Usher. ready. I wanted to read 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29 says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes that's what we've just done we've looked forward to the time when he's coming again Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And that's why I gave you time to just make sure your heart was right. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here, Stryker, I have one too. Thank you, sir. You are growing in service, aren't you? Hallelujah, hallelujah. At this time, it is my prayer that for some of you, we shift you up a little bit this morning. For some of you, maybe we shift you up a lot this morning. It is my prayer that you will never worship God the same, that you will always choose and realize that it's a choice, that you want to be all in. If you don't want to be all in, why are you here? See, I believe you're all inners. You want to be all in. I believe that's your, the heart of people who call this church their home. We scare anybody else who's not sincere away. People either feel the tangible presence of God here and they love it, or they think we're crazy. 
So I believe you're those that want to be all in. So be all in. And that's why I put the bulk of our worship to the end. It's just some let me rearrange things. Because I believe we're going to worship God differently from this point forward. And your job is to help those who missed today for whatever reason to catch it, to get it. Let's go all in.
that during that song, I just, I felt like I heard it even. Somebody's chains, it could they have been in worship, it may have been in something else. The chains just broke and they clattered to the floor. Who was that? Somebody you felt like during that song, you just felt like you had been set free, something that had been holding you back. Who was that? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, I just was going to give you opportunity to praise the Lord. Don't be, a, don't be afraid. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I just believe that he wants to set us free, not only in worship, but he just wants to set us free of anything that's been holding us back in our lives. Hallelujah. He wants to break us out of any bondage or conformity that the enemy has tried to put upon us. Hallelujah. 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 Well, let's just keep singing.
as we were singing that last song, I felt like there's someone, you're, you're about to drop the last piece of chain that's holding you back or something, and yet you're afraid to let it go. And as weird as that sounds, it's, even though it's been limiting, you've known your boundaries, and you're almost afraid of what will happen if I do let it go. Because it's bound you for so long, it's almost become a security. You're wondering whether you should drop that last piece or not, and you're hesitating. And I just want to encourage you, drop it. Hallelujah. Because, yes, you're going to be in uncharted waters and on unfamiliar ground, but you're going to be holding God's hand, so you're going to be okay. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let it go. Hallelujah. Let it go. If our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? Our God is greater. Our God. 
has ever coached a team before? Who has ever coached, whether it's your kids' team or, you know, uh, friends, if you just played on, on, you know, I know my husband plays softball and a lot of the guys look up to him. Who in here? Raise your hand if you've ever coached, if you've ever instructed or led in any way a group of people. When your team is hurting, when your team is down, when your team when your team needs that encouragement, you shout for them. You shout for your team. You encourage them. You tell them, you can do it. We can do this. We can fight. We're not going to give up. And we're not going to give up. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep doing this. And we are going to keep encouraging each other. We are going to lift each other up. And we are going to unite in this church. Because that's how a family works. We work and encourage each other. And that's why we're here together. So that we can lift each other up and bring each other to the best we can possibly be. And when you guys shout, it makes me want to shout. And when you guys are praising, it makes me want to praise. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving like that. Because God does deserve that. He does deserve the best of our worship. The absolute best. God is so awesome. <laughs> you know, God showed me that several people, uh, they went up a level. And that may not seem like it makes a big difference to go up one level. Some of you may have gone up more than one. But if the blessing's flowing right here and I'm standing here, I'm missing it. But if I take one step and I'm suddenly under it, and I'm under it. Sometimes that slightest shift in perspective that slightest shift in attitude can make a world of difference. And I believe for some of you this morning, it's, it's a step up. I felt like God saying, those people take you going to new levels, new levels, new levels. Hallelujah. And it's just the beginning. And I want you to see what difference that makes in your week. And I want you to come and tell me when you see, wow, I went up just one little level and what a different week I had. Thank you, God. Thank you. So right before we close in prayer, I wanted to ask you this. Are you a grape or are you a marvel? Are you willing to put yourself out there to get a little messy and really share yourself with God and with others? Remember that we need your flavor and your gifts and your anointings. And when each of you brings the fullness of you, like Christina said, to the table, we're all blessed. So let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Help us to become more of the children that you want us to be. More obedient, more submitted, more committed, more excited. Thank you, Lord, for taking us up.